This podcast is presented by Rabbi Peretz Muchkin, speaking to the millennial generation. In this episode, I sit down with Rabbi Simon Jacobson. Rabbi Simon is a best-selling author of the book Toward a Meaningful Life. His website, MeaningfulLife.com, is an incredible resource for Jewish spirituality and relevance. And his app, My Omer, is one of my favorite apps to use, especially when it goes towards making yourself the best available person you could be. I'm lucky to sit down with Rabbi Simon to discuss and process some of the difficult things that I've been going through and that I think could resonate as a whole to what people are going through during quarantine. I've had a baby in the last month. I've lost a sibling in the last month. And sometimes you just need to sit down with someone just with more experience and more spiritual depth to help you navigate what's going on. So I hope this conversation is meaningful to you. Uh, look up Rabbi Simon at MeaningfulLife.com, and let's continue the dialogue by reaching out to me at word at RabbiParrots.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Rabbi Parrots podcast. I haven't been podcasting the last few weeks because I think it's been difficult to figure out exactly what I really want to say during this time. I wanted my message to be super authentic. And since I'm going through a quarantine for the first time, and so are you, it was very hard for me to come up with, this is what you should do, or this is how to handle it, because it's uh, quite difficult to know how to handle something you're doing for the first time. Experience usually happens after you experience it. And I'm very fortunate to be joined by somebody I consider a mentor, even though I haven't directly prodded him for mentorship in the past, but he puts himself out there and really gives over a lot. His name is Rabbi Simon Jacobson, and I'm super excited to have him here with us. Welcome, Rabbi Simon. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I, uh, I'm finishing up your Omer book right over here, and this is the number one book I've given out to my community members over all the years. I used to wait to give it out to them during the time of the counting of the Omer. And then I realized, wait, actually, anytime somebody comes and is like, Rabbi, give me a pathway towards like growing and adding more value to my life, I give them the book. I say, do it for 49 days, and then you'll be ready whenever the time is, because this is really the deepest insight for Jewish people of what it means to work on yourself. It really gives something. So I just thank you for, since you published that, it's made a huge difference to my work over here. I appreciate it. It's always great to hear feedback. I hear tremendous feedback on this book uh, because of the personal and it's also short and succinct nature. I'll just share with you, <clears throat> I recently received a call a while back, actually, from a uh, psychiatrist in Salt Lake City, and he runs a rehab. And um, he told me that he uses this book as required exercises for all his uh, patients because he says it, it, it compels you to focus on a detail, not just on being a better person, but like how much do you love and how you love and your discipline and so on. And I was very touched by that. So it really has also universal appeal. And it uh, goes through literally the dissects your internal emotional character to make it better. I, I find that uh, the biggest reaction I get, the positive one, is when people say, Rabbi, I need more than a day per motion. It's too difficult. There's a lot to unpack over there. And I agree. If you're taking this serious, uh, I was I got engaged to my wife during this period of time between Passover and Shavuot when we were doing it. And we, we 
were set were separate. I was in New York and she was by her parents in San Francisco. And our exercise was every night we would go through the Omer together. And that allowed us, I think, to deepen our vision together. Our whole vision of what we want to do with our life came from using this as an exercise. I'm very touched. I feel like I'm part of your uh, your relationship in a way. That's it. That's why I said you're you're my mentor without uh, necessarily uh, full my mentorship. Well, it it's been a difficult time for me. I lost my sister last week, and earlier this month, I also had a baby. So I love this little girl I had, and I love this sister I lost. And being so close one to the other. Um, it's kind of it's kind of made it very difficult for me to unpack my emotions. And even looking at your book and and all the the incredible information that it's helped me up until this point in my life, I'm having a difficult time looking at it now. And it's almost I'm not sure if I used it all already and now I need something new, or or how do I peel away a layer? And uh, I want to tell people how to do it because I meet other people who've also gone through so much, but I haven't been able to fully unpack this myself. Look, first of all, my heart goes out to you with my condolences. It's a tragic, tragic event, loss of a sister and leaving so many children. I mean, I don't have any words, honestly. I don't think there's a book, whether it's the Omer book or any book that can really fully console you. It just brings to mind the story, which I think really captures it and maybe be helpful. <coughs> there was a rabbi, a very respected rabbi, who had a tremendous loss. He lost his entire family in a shipwreck. And nobody wanted to tell him about the tragedy. Finally, uh, his favorite student was chosen and says, you have to tell him. We have to tell him. We can't just keep it from him. But the student didn't feel comfortable. How do you tell him? your revered uh, teacher and mentor and rabbi, such a, you know, how do you break such news? So he was thinking and running around and around the block and then finally came up with an idea. He walks into the, the base medrash, that's the academy where they would learn and study. And he goes over to his rabbi with a Talmud and he says the Talmud and Brochus, the first tractate says, he opens it up and says, it says here, just as, you have to thank God for the blessings in your life. You have to thank God for the curses, for the tragic, for the negative things. How do you explain this? He didn't tell the rabbi what happened. He just said theoretically. And the rabbi went into a whole explanation, expo expounding on the idea that we don't understand God's ways and there's always a deeper good and every descent brings to a greater ascent. You know, all the conventional explanations. But the student wouldn't let go. He was not, he was, would not relent. He said, but still, how could you compare the two? He says, it's hard, but we have to understand that God gives life and God takes life. Finally, the student says to him, are you telling me that, as, that if a person suffers a tragedy, they should dance, just like they're dancing at the birth of their newborn child? He said, yes, it's difficult, but that's what they have to do. So he says to the rabbi, you can start dancing. And he told them what happened. Instead of dancing, the rabbi fainted. And when they finally revived him, he said, you know, suddenly, I don't understand the entire Talmud myself. So what I want to say to you, I say it heart to heart, and to anyone that suffered a loss. There are things in life that words are simply inadequate. Books are inadequate. The Omer book, yes, it goes through your emotions. But there are times when our, all our circuits are overwhelmed. And we just have to recognize that it is more powerful than our minds. A bleeding heart 
cannot be addressed by an intelligent mind. And that's why you find in, the, in Judaism the ultimate answer to real tragedy in the face of tragedy. I don't mean when time passes and you can look back at it and what have I learned. But at the moments when it's raw, the wound is open, the raw wound is open, we, the, the answer is silence. Aaron lost his son's silence. The 10 martyrs were brutally killed by the Romans, silence. Why? Because silence is not a cop-out. It's a recognition of the, and the humble recognition that there's things that are beyond us. There was a, uh, one of the Rebbes after the Holocaust said, even if God were to come to me with an explanation, I don't want to hear an explanation why one and a half million innocent children and six million Jews were, were, were slaughtered. I don't want to hear. So I have to say to you is tragedy is one of those places where a door opens up to you and God, and it's not something that really can, there are no words. So I'm not surprised. I'm not, I'd be shocked if you told me there's a book, whether it's my book or any book that is able to uh, fill that hole. I think it's something we have to cry. One of the Rebbes once said to one of his, uh, one of his disciples who had a, a terrible tragedy, he said, I don't have answers for you, but I can cry with you. We cry together, and in some mysterious way, there is healing and a type of um, healing through the process of silence, of shock, even of anger, even of yelling to the heavens themselves and saying, why, why? We may not know the answer, but we, we have to absorb it, and the only way out is through. And I know it doesn't sound very uh, consoling and very uh, wise, but... It is ultimately the way we approach it. And I, uh, I, I wouldn't even suggest you open up my Omer book to find answers there. But I will say, is the end of the day, we, what Judaism teaches us is that after recognizing the silence, we then do ask ourselves, what can I do to become a better person? What could I do to perpetuate the legacy and memory of my loved one? So it's not like we lie down and die. We cry and we cry out and we recognize there are things we don't understand and mysterious ways of God, but we become stronger people in the process. And that's really where ultimately you see what's so unique about um, those that have suffered and have grown through it. Uh, it doesn't explain why it happened, but something more powerful, some deeper resources. It's like you're going to either uh, swim or um, sink. So you have to dig deeper. And again, my heart goes out. I don't have the adequate words to tell you. It's, it's, I can't even imagine it, especially with all the scope and the, how many lives it affects. But we know that we have the strength to get through it and strength to become greater people. So I tell you, parents. Well, my sister wouldn't allow me to mope too long anyways. She, with her way of dealing with life and always focusing on the positive, she wouldn't allow me to mope too long. However, when I, when I give over the type of, you know, language that Judaism has of silence and, and also like stages allowing us to go from loss to legacy, I find that, that more than anything, it's people want to hold on to the pain so that they could stay in the moment. They want to stay in the zone. They don't want to lose that feeling of that person. And there's that fear that if I, that if I stop mourning, I once went to uh, visit somebody. They lived in the building I lived in in San Francisco, and I knocked on their door, and she said, I can't see you now. I'm mourning. I said, I, I feel horrible. Can I Can I help you out? Anything I do? She's like, no, you can go away. I went away. And later on, 
I found out that she was mourning. This was her seventh year of mourning. And her whole house was painted black. And uh, and she basically decided to live a life of mourning. So that was a real realization about how people can can use mourning and silence and use these terms that in the beginning are like, yes, the only comfort, as you said, the only way out is through. But then there are people who basically take comfort in in st- staying within the darkness and staying within that as the only way to feel that other person. And that's that's really what the stage I'm at, at now where I'd like to walk away from this, but in a way where it's dignified and, and uplifting, as well as gives me the experience that I could now share and really uplift others who uh, will deal with tragedy, but have the opportunity to build a real legacy and real strength and real power. It brings to mind a very powerful letter that I actually used when I wrote Toward a Meaningful Life, my book, on the, in the chapter on death and grieving. It's a letter that Rebbe wrote to a young teenage Young, a woman, a 16-year-old woman who had lost her young 37-year-old mother, leaving five children behind, a terrible tragedy. And she wrote to the Rebbe, and the Rebbe, Lubavitcher Rebbe, wrote back to her a very powerful letter, and he says, he addresses exactly what you just pointed out. He said that according to Jewish law, one per, a person chooses that does not want to grieve less than seven days, shiva. It's not appropriate. It's not sensitive. If a person wants to grieve more than seven days, it's also not sensitive. And the Rebbe asked the question, how can you regulate emotions? If a person feels sad, how could you just tell them after seven days, don't feel sad? Or they, they, they don't feel so sad. You tell them, no, you can't do it, you just grieve for seven days. And the Rebbe said the Torah, which was given by God, who created the human being, has a deeper understanding of what is healthy catharsis, what is healthy healing, what is healthy grieving. To overgrieve is just as bad as to undergrieve. It's critical. If a person says, I accept anything God does, it's all for the good, I don't need to grieve. That's not healthy. The greatest people, Moses, Aaron, I remember the Rebbe when he lost his wife, you're supposed to grieve. That's how we were created. If you don't feel grief, there's something the matter with you. How could you not feel uh, the pain of a loss? Even if you have a great believer. At the same time, to become consumed with it, that also can be destructive. I'm not here to judge anyone. You know, everybody has their life, but that's why the Torah has to regulate. So it's like it's, it's stages, just like any healing. You know, when you have an open wound, first you have to deal with the open wound, but then a scab will develop and will ultimately heal. So the Talmud actually describes the stages. There's the seven days, there's the 30 days from the passing of someone, then there's the year that ends. And you never forget the person that you loved, but the wound, the pain, I remember when I sat Shiva for my father, you don't even remember what people tell you. One thing I remember, a person said to me, when something like this happens, a death of a loved one, it's like a hole in your heart. And that hole, you keep falling into. And think of it, he said, like a hole in your living room. You keep falling into it until one day you learn to walk around it. You don't, the hole doesn't go away. So there's nothing to feel guilty about because there are many ways to translate the grief. So initially, there's tears, there's shock, there's tears, there's grieving, there's crying, all that comes with that. Then there comes a point, and the healthy grieving, you don't forget and say, I'm moving on with my life. You channel that energy into something positive. I have no doubt that you're going to build something from this. Some people build an, an institution. Some people do causes. Something in the memory where you in some way perpetuate 
This I also saw from the Rebbe. It was unbelievable to see that you can take grief, which is a lot of energy, and channel it to build something, whether it's a, it's a new program, a new project, uh, because it's tremendous power. It, it does, definitely, you're not complacent. So how do you deal with it without letting it implode and causing more damage? You want to take that energy and build something with it in the spirit of the values that your sister lived by um, and uh, or things you personally knew as a brother to a sister. And that is ultimately all part of the same process of healing. I understand the guilt people feel they want to hold on. They almost want to build a shrine. But th- that, 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 if it's demoralizing and doesn't create productivity, the soul in heaven, the Rebbe writes in the letter, is in pain that you're not l- allowing yourself to build your life. You're just living with that tragedy and just don't want, don't want to let go. Well, to the to the building stage and to the legacy stage, you know, being a human being, you're a micro of the the macro, the world itself. The world itself goes through losses tremendously and tries to rebuild itself with legacy. And I think Judaism has a very powerful message, not just for the micro, for me, as you're sharing with me but also what I then share with others. In other words, how it now builds the world. And, and based on those, those ideas, I've always focused on, on that of building because I was charged with this mission. I grew up in Brooklyn. I, I had uh, the Rebbe charging me to do something with my life and not for myself, but for to affect my surroundings. And my sister lived that way and I lived that way. But now it's time for me to charge everyone I meet with the same, with the same passion that I have for myself. I, I'm always trying to share some of my own passion with them so they could also feel charged to, to affect the world. We call it Mashiach, essentially, to build a future, but it's like the, the gateway to get there, and in order to see yourself as an important part of it, comes down to how relevant somebody else's loss, your own loss, and the world's loss is. So my main reason for talking about it publicly and with you and with those who will be listening is I don't want this to remain a personal tragedy because the world is full of tragedy every day. I would like it to I would like to live within the legacy and the building of it because that's really where the whole world is. The world could have given up centuries ago on rebuilding itself with uh, with monarchs and kingdoms that have disappeared. It all comes down to the people who choose to build. And today that that vision is called Mashiach, which is to me, just a sustainable version of the building. Like we're going to build something that it will actually last the test of time. And uh, so that message to me is really what I focus on day to day. And that's what I'm trying to get back to, but this time more empowered with a, with a, with a lot deeper of an awareness of that sense to have the sensitivity to empower others to build that way, knowing that everybody has so much micro loss and, and micro building phases and find a way to collective. And I'm still sorting my thoughts with all this, but that's really what I want to get to with you is how to get to that stage. Well, I, I commend you because I absolutely, without doubt, maybe you don't even know the extent of it, that you're doing this program and programs like this, reaching people gives them strength, but it's going to give you strength. It's a tremendous healing and cathartic power when you are not sitting alone and you're isolated and just crying and grieving over loss, but taking that energy, taking that passion and bringing it, you know, we speak about these matters. Who knows who's going to listen to this? There may be somebody who's right now in a very lonely, sad place and they hear this, it gives them a little strength. But I want to say to you, the fact that you're doing this and you're not just licking your wounds and retreating, 
is going to be a tremendous healing element. Because in a way, you're doing it in honor of your, your sister. You're doing it in honor of her, honor of what she stood for. Even though you have this podcast before that, but still, now that focus, and I have to commend you because it's been very easy for you to just take off for the next few months and say, hey, I deserve to just uh, cry and grieve. So this is how you've been trained, which is a, a really powerful way. It's not denial. You're not ignoring it. You're talking about it very openly. And you're directing that energy. You're harnessing that energy toward real productive means. That is going to come back to tremendous healing for you as you get through this uh, challenge in your life. There's there's this idea that that uh, what makes loss very real to me is that physicality is where it's at. In other words, God didn't create a world for us to be essentially spiritual beings. He created a world for us to be real bodies, real physical people. And one of the ways I connect with my community is that I'm never trying to make them anything they're not. I feel by inspiration and adding good tools and just being a conduit for the best version that they can see in life is all I need to do. Whether they become religious or not is less important to me because I want them to get there on their own. I, I don't I don't want to guide them their whole entire life. I want them to, you know, be able to live their life. No different than give a man a fishing pole, you know, really be able to allow people to become who they want to be. And the only way to do that is to let them work through their physicality. Everybody's always trying to escape into spiritual zones and into like soul and into all the different things. And even when it comes to your book of the Omer, I f- every year I find it more and more physical and less and less soul spiritual. It's as if the body is supposed to be what opens up the animation, not the soul. The soul is on fire all the time. It grieves and it and it has joy. And the Talmud story that you mentioned beautifully represents the soul. The soul dances for the same reasons for everything because it's pulsating with energy. So it's always lifting itself. The body, on the other hand, struggles tremendously because it's not apparent to the body how it's what its talents are and what it's capable of achieving and how it's able to uncover those things. So for me, that's my job essentially is to remind people that their talents and their attractions are essentially gifts from God to indicate where they're able to build themselves and make themselves. And the same way with with the with the loss right now, it's just this powerful indicator. And I've suffered loss of cousins or grandparents, but never someone who was my age and and uh and and you know and and kin on on all levels. So bringing that into my community is now this this is my new challenge. How do I bring it into the physicality of it? Because I believe it's the physical where the Mashiach is, where the future is, where life is. It's all physical, physical, physical. And in the physical space, a lot of what you've been saying about dealing with grieving and like that, and I think that does guide people, is on the spiritual terms. But on the physical terms, it's not entirely there. And uh, so when this doesn't work for me, if I'm not feeling spiritual in the moment, how do I pivot to find inspiration within the physical itself as well? I don't know if that's a question. It's a thought. Maybe I'll no, it'll it's a very, later. It's a very good thought. I mean, the way I would phrase it is this. What you're asked, uh, rephrase the question or reframe the question would be, how do you um, translate spiritual consciousness to physical consciousness? In other words, these truths that we understand, that the here and now is limited, that even the body, even the soul within the body is, uh, has, has its finite journey, but the soul continues on, that the people we love and the values we connect with and God himself are forces that are with us eternally. So your sister's soul is with us, 
with you, with your family, with her family? Um, how do you translate that in the very tangible physical reality which we have to contend with on a daily basis? Because as much as one understands, as I mentioned, the soul moves on, the soul does not die, but still the pain is that the soul and body are no longer connected in a way that we can tangibly, that you can sit down with a conversation to your sister and you can hug her <clears throat> and you could speak to her eye to eye and have a, a physical interaction. That is the painful thing. So what I would say is a few points. Um, and I speak from my own experiences. I thank God I've not had a tragedy of this nature, but I've lost a father and I've seen close people pass away. Is the way you translate that into the physical is through combination of service, love, and uh, connection. Let me explain. You're a public servant. You serve your community through this program, through many other things that you do. When you're serving, and that's a very physical thing, somebody has a need for a meal, someone needs a prayer, someone needs help with their children, all the services that you offer are very physical. But instead of taking care of your own needs, you are helping others. To me, that is an expression of spiritual consciousness on the physical level. Because very many people just live dog eats dog. Self-interest is what drives their lives. When you serve and help others, it's a very physical manifestation that is healing. Now you'll say, what's the connection? The connection is because you're not focused around your own self. Same thing is with love, the people you love. Those that go through grief and loss and come out, become more loving, appreciating what they have. Even this whole quarantine with the pandemic that has for so many brought out certain dimensions they haven't seen so long. They were busy at work and busy with this distraction, that distraction. So bringing out deeper dimensions of love. And finally, the third thing is the connection, connections we make. You know, they tell us to be socially or physically distant, but we're spiritually and soulfully connected more than ever. I don't know if you and I would be speaking now were it not for this whole uh, situation, Zoom has become so popular. So I say to you is this, on a physical dimension, that's exactly how God's plan was, not to live in the spiritual realms, which are abstract, ethereal realities, but to come into this very physical world, which is often dark and painful and corrupt and divisive and exploitive, I go through all the words, and duplicitous, and make this world, make this challenging world, this physical, very physical reality into a divine home. That's the expression. That when you speak about Mashiach, what does that ultimately mean? That the physical universe becomes an abode, a, a resting place. You can say a channel, a channel for higher consciousness. And we do that when it comes down to that's why a mitzvah, a good deed, is an action. It's not just I thought it's not just good at heart, it's action. Serving others, loving others are not just concepts. They're physical manifestations of a higher reality. When you love another, it's like seeing the face of God. That's how you bring God into this world. So physical action, very concrete actions, thoughts and speech, speech and thought are the ways we achieve what you're describing. So the healing isn't just oh, I connect to the soul of my loved one. 
but you also connect by bringing some. That's why, for example, when you say Yisker, on the second day of Shavuos, on the holiday, we say Yisker, as we do on Yom Kippur and on the last day of Passover and, and Sukkot, Shemini Yatzeret. What is Yisker? Yisker is remembering our loved one. It's a short prayer, but it's interesting. You say, I remember my father and, or whoever it is that passed on, and then you say, in their honor, I am giving a charitable donation. So the question is asked, what does money and charity have to do? You're talking about a soul. The soul doesn't even need money anymore. It doesn't live in the material world. Because the goal here is not just to connect the soul. The goal is to bring it into some re a real concrete reality. You're going to give physical charity. You're going to build an institution. Look how many hospitals, schools, and other beautiful institutions were built in the name of someone, memory of someone. Because then you're translating spiritual love into physical terms. Well, the physical reality, for example, of my community is less related to that type of large impact. Um, I think there's a lot of a lot of a lot of struggle with with small physical impacts being able to be seen as as impactful to the larger norm. It's almost like, yes, if I'm very wealthy and I build an institution, I, I contributed to it. It's very hard to see the small acts coming together physically. Spiritually, you can see small acts coming together pretty easily. But but physically, especially during this quarantine time, I think it's been a tremendous difficult thing for people to see their acts as 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 each and every act matters and how and how you and how the spirituality you know, permeates the physicality. In other words, there's a real missing link between what I do. Up until quarantine, I've been saying that brushing your teeth matters. Every nuance of your life matters. How could you say something doesn't matter? If you're a being and you're a spiritual being, everything matters. It's all part of a, a collective tapestry. But now when day-to-day -day bleeds into difficulties and even, even the loss I'm dealing with, it just, it continues. Like It doesn't feel like it stops. It's just each day bleeds into another, each act bleeds into another. It's much harder to see physicality in its, in its separation and meaningful impact. So I think, I think gateway to the soul is, could end up being harder after quarantine than it was before in its, in its own way. And I'm trying to set it up for that being also a great pathway. Like that's for a reason as well. Things are being turned on their head where it's harder to, to use the same language that we used before, after. So just like before I had a personal loss, I thought of it one way and afterwards it's another way. Before I gave over meaningful ideas before quarantine, I just don't feel I can give the same ideas over afterwards. I feel like there's a, a new person I'm speaking to, a new language that needs to emerge, a new way of creating this type of connection. And the reason why I think it's much harder is because of this aforementioned idea that physicality is less noticeable each and every thing that it matters because it all's bleeding into one another based on like being alone. So this is this idea to me is becoming harder and harder to translate to others. I actually find the opposite to be true. Um, I deal with many people, as you can imagine, and live in New York. People's lives have been disrupted. What has been disrupted? Their physical lives, not their spiritual lives. Their schedules, their calendar, their work, school, entertainment, travel plans, summer plans, restaurants, theater, you name it. So I hear very often from people these days 
that, you know, my outer life has been all upended. I have no idea what's going to be in a few weeks from now. I mean, things are relaxed, getting more relaxed a bit, but it's still. And many people feel that the way to turn to is the only thing I have control over is my inner life, what I love, values, spirituality. So I'm finding that there are many people are much more receptive now because uh, like a few months ago, if I said to somebody, come, let's study together. He says, I have no time right now. I'm busy building a new business. I'm going to summer to Italy or wherever. Today, all those uh, crutches, and you could say security blankets and comfort zones have been somewhat shaken up. So I find a lot of people are very receptive. It's true that there's also f- fear and unknown and uncertainties. So I think you can use this time, especially as we move from quarantine back out to be almost like a wake-up call, what really matters in life. I can tell you right now, I ask people all the time, five months ago, let's say, what are the three most important things that matter to you? Most young men and women, and even older people, would say things like um, sexuality, money, power, my... uh, Sports, video games. No one's going to answer that now. Now they'll say, the people I love, to be healthy. What do I stand for? So I think that every situation offers its own opportunities. So though people have been shaken and they're still shaken and frightened, especially the unknown, but there are a lot of openings now that you usually don't have because people are home. And I personally, my work, find I've been doing more work than I've ever done and much more receptivity to to a lot of it. So, yes, you can't talk the language that you did three months ago, but you have to talk the new language, the language that people are dealing with. You know, people are doing marriage in quarantine, addiction in quarantine. What do I stand for? How do I, can I be alone? These are topics that I find that people are very drawn to nowadays. I'm single. I feel so so afraid. And I, on the list goes on and on. Well, I think that uh, that you seeing that uh, hopefully it'll trickle down to us over here in California. Um, uh, it's just been such a major shock to the system, especially of all the entrepreneurs, especially in, in technology, that all the technology they're building has not made them necessarily closer to one another. But yet there's a whole world now using that technology that they created to be closer with one another. So there is this, you know, juxtaposing issues here. The people building all the tools don't often, you know, feel the love of what they've created. They say that about social media, that the people who are the best at social media are antisocial people. I I spent spent 10 years in San Francisco. I spent 10 years in San Francisco. That's where they made Instagram. But now I live in Venice Beach and that's where they're really using it. So there's definitely these these different places. Um, So what do you think? Let me ask you from the, the world you live in. What do you see as people, what are they responding to? What are they interested in hearing about these days? So I find that up until now, the basic language of Judaism has worked when people are inquiring. Like, what does Judaism say about this or that? There's been a lot of answers. And and those are the ones that I think are falling, at least to the people I speak to. So I've pivoted to a very a very big dream, the Jewish dream of messianic future, of do they do they respond to that? I find they're responding to that simply because the dream includes them. Prior to this, 
Judaism doesn't always feel inclusive because it can feel like it's based on a certain amount of joining uh, synagogues or or X amount of physical labor that you put into it. But the Mashiach discussion doesn't preclude anyone from being a part of it. It just includes, I'm willing to do something to make the world better, and they're immediately inspired that their small action matters. So God bless you. I mean, that's great. That, to me, that is a very positive sign. If people are responding to that, that better future, and how you can be part of the unfolding drama, that to me is a very, uh, very positive sign. Well, I, I've taken a, a long uh, break from doing my job, both the baby and the loss. And uh, okay, and, that we understand. So, so, we understand. so I apologize for those who haven't heard my enthusiasm, but and I'm also thankful to you for coming on and uh, and you know giving me uh, a jolt and uh, reminding me to keep going at it because I I needed I needed a way to restart this program. Um, from the space that I feel comfortable within, which is optimism and which is positivity. And uh, as, as one of the people who called me in my community to pay me a shiva call said, uh, you've always called us and showed up for us and done everything for us. Now we'd like to give something to you. And I didn't know what to say. Like, what, what are they supposed to give to me? Um, what am I looking to ask for? And I guess, I guess uh, what it seems to be is what they're really saying is what we're giving to you is the time to to go through the process of coming out with this with more and the time we're not expecting you to guide us through quarantine the next few weeks, but giving you the time to galvanize your own self and, uh, and get ready to go back to it. So that's how I took it from anyone who said it. And, uh, and that's how I'm feeling now. Like it's the next holidays coming up this weekend. It's a holiday that uh, I used to have a lot of fun with. And now I'm going to, you know, have to re rethink of how do I, you know, animate it for my kids? How do I animate it for my community when it's not going to be in the same way it was till now? And uh, so that's really where I'm trying to get back to, to this very, to where I feel comfortable. My comfort zone is a very optimistic zone. And uh, once I'm there, I can start going back and not only this program, but doing all the things that I do in the new way. But very much this new language appeals to me as much as it does to the people around me, which is the future is not built by any affiliation is built by your next act, essentially, by your next, by your next conversation, by your next frame of thought. And these were too kitschy to be posted on social media up until now. But from now, they represent the only way out is essentially. It's not just learning, meaning I'm it's more than coping for me. It's about the building. It's entirely about the legacy play for me to see the value of the physical world that we're in. So that's what I that's why I think that conversation works a lot more than just wanting to be spiritual or just wanting to do more Torah mitzvot per se. It's more about seeing your physicality matters desperately and that your physical body, again, what you're literally what you're attracted with is God giving you indicators that you have what to offer. And, uh, and, and I didn't have anything to offer the last few weeks. It just felt completely shell-shocked and, and that's what I'm trying to get back to now, back to like, I have more than what to offer. Being me is an offering. Every person being you is the biggest offering you could be. And that's the Mashiach conversation. You, you know, you being that. Anyways, that's my- okay. I would just add to that. Very well said. What I would add to that is just a, visualiza- a visualization. You know, every disruption in history and in our personal lives is really a stepping stone toward the greater growth, a new paradigm. You know, think of a chick inside of an egg. 
and it's developing and developing, then you suddenly see the egg start cracking. You say, oh no, the structure is, is getting disrupted. The, the, the eggshell is cracking. But then you realize a little chick is emerging. So you're going to focus on the egg and its cracks or on the chick that's going to be born from it. So when there's a disruption, the way the Hasidic masters put it, it's like a vacuum between two stages. You have to shed one layer of skin to assume a new one. So the disruption, whatever industry it may be, whether it's technology or other areas of the, in the economic spectrum or personal life, you can see it as being, oh, it's just disturbing my life. Or you could say, maybe it's opening up a door, like a crack in the realities that I so worshipped and was so dependent on, realize that they are all pretty fragile. And accepting that and recognizing the cracks is the beginning of a new birthing, the new birthing of ourselves as better people, the birthing ourselves even, and I, of course, include the physical level. I don't really see a contradiction, to be honest, between spiritual awareness and doing more mitzvahs and bringing Mashiach. To me, when you have a wake-up call of that nature and there's a disruption and you see it's a paradigm shifting, what you do is all your resources, your spiritual and physical resources, and your mitzvahs, and everything the best of you comes into play as being tremendous instruments and tools, resources, to really lead yourself and the world to a more redemptive place, a messianic world. And that's, uh, I think, the beauty of it, that it's, it has spiritual meaning, but it's physical in the sense that it's very tangible and real in our daily lives. And that is how we, we, we look at it that way. You think of the, look at the bigger narrative, not just the momentary discomfort. The bigger narrative is that this disruption will lead to a greater birthing of a new reality, a new paradigm. And that's it. That's uh, I, I found it very hard to say that in the beginning of quarantine. <laughs> I found it very hard to tell people well, that. Uh, me me new too. I would not merge. say that because first you have to deal, like we said before, when someone has a loss and they're in grief or they're in fear, you have to consult them. You can't just say, hey, my friend, you know, you lost your sister. This is a step toward Mashiach. That's not sensitive. That's not right now. We need to cry right now. We need to mourn. But yes, as things develop, you start looking at step back in the bigger picture. I just wanted to confirm what you're saying. Well, I hope that uh, some of these ideas will resonate with uh, people. Uh, they resonate with me because it's very easy to look at the news and feel very cynical about the lack of information and the lack of ability to, to know what's coming next. Uh, but I think for, for us, and for us means whoever takes that us into themselves, it's that you have to become a beacon of optimism, and uh, I hope I could uh, inspire you to do that. And uh, and I also want to thank uh, Rabbi Simon for coming on and sharing um, how he approaches his work and how he tries to inspire the people that come to him as well. And uh, you could be the, nothing we said over here was major Kabbalistic and major and major. You can just take these words and think about them and share them and become a beacon of light for your for these for these ideas as well they don't need to remain in the rabbinical territory they belong in the domain of each and every person to become a conduit for these for these concepts and if you leave it with me on this podcast and with Reb Simon in New York uh, then it's not it's not really it's about think of somebody today you could share any of these ideas with yourself included and uh, we'll look forward to this future that we're surely going to build because uh, we're not giving up on that. We're not giving up on a brighter future. 
and uh, more importantly, an optimistic future so that everything we do will matter. So thank you so much for coming and sharing in this capacity. It was my pleasure. I will say this on a concluding note. They say there are three types of people, people who make things happen, people who watch things happen, and people who ask what happened. We now have an opportunity more than ever to make things happen, as you just said, to initiate, to be in our own little way. It could be in our home, in our work, in our sphere of influence. And it's my honor to intersect with you. Thank you for having me. And to all your listening audience, if anybody wants to see more of my stuff, you go to MeaningfulLife.com. You can give them more information if you, uh, as you see fit. And um, as I said, it's been an honor. I want to again extend my condolences and my blessings and to you and your family to have a lot of strength to get through this and uh, really l- live up to her legacy and uh, in, in ways greater than ever before. Thank you. Thank you. Ali Adi